TBS Friday and streaming on Paramount Plus. Campfire's coming to you! Don't miss TV's hottest show, Fire Country. This is a high complexity rescue with a low chance of success. Follow the rules, and you shave another day off your sentence. Critics call it explosive and pure entertainment. I'm a felon. I'm not fit to be anything else. You're not an inmate, you're a firefighter. Bring it on. Fire Country. New episode Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Welcome to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. Or are we the official Jack Reacher podcast this week, Charles? Uh, I think technically we're still the official Mission Impossible podcast, but we are unofficially the Jack Reacher podcast this week. Yes, the unofficial Jack Reacher, which I think Jack Reacher would appreciate, too. Don't you think? Yeah, he does not give a tinker's fig about what anybody thinks (laughs) or what the law wants to do. He's just out there exacting justice and we love it and yes so for this week we talked to writer director christopher mccory who we've obviously had on the show multiple times and he's a a dear friend of ours but we on this occasion we are talking to him about the 10th anniversary of the first jack reacher movie starring tom cruise and what can people expect from this conversation charles well, um, McCory was in South Africa filming Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning at the time, and you were in London, I think, for the Avatar premiere, and I was in L.A., so we were in all different time zones, and I think there's mention of this uh, at the end of the interview, so don't be confused. That's why we're, we were all in very different time zones, and I think it was like 3.30 in the morning for me. It was it was a crazy... Yeah, Charles had it wor- the worst. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I was, it was like, I think you know we were trying to get him on. We really wanted to get him on for the 10th anniversary. This is back in December 2022, and uh, yeah, we just really wanted to make it happen, and so I think he emailed, I think it was like after midnight, and he was like, you know, I can talk now, and I was just like, oh, let's let's do it. Let's just do it. <laughs> and so then we ended up talking to him for a long time and then it was you know three in the morning before you know it and totally worth it absolutely this is a great chat we get into everything we get into our favorite shots from the movie and how they were accomplished because it is a really you look at that movie now and it really is kind of adventurous the way that it's shot and told and i think it's just wonderful it's absolutely wonderful yeah, beautiful looking movie and, and so fun and, and great and just so many amazing lines of dialogue that are so memorable. Yeah, I think that this movie just ages really well. It's just getting better and better with every year. But if you're looking for something to watch after you revisit Jack Reacher, Charles, can I suggest that people go on to Paramount Plus and watch the first six Mission Impossible movies? I would say pick your favorite, but I'm just going to say watch all of them again. I think that's the safe bet. Also, if you want to... Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning is available from your favorite digital retailer and also in physical media, which is what we prefer, DVD, Blu-ray, or 4K Ultra HD disc. So go out, snap that up, and uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. Sound good to you, Charles? Yeah, that sounds great. We will be back. So we're here to talk about the the 10th anniversary of Jack Reacher. How did how did Jack Reacher come into your life? Um, Jack Reacher came into my life uh, with uh, by way of Don Granger, who uh, is a, a producer on the film, 
and was at the time working for Cruz Wagner or had been working for Cruz Wagner prior to Cruz Wagner becoming United Artists, which then went on to make Valkyrie. And that's where I met Don and worked with him very closely. And when UA was winding down, Don was thinking about thinking ahead about what was next. And he went through all the old Cruz Wagner material and came to me with uh, one shot, which was my introduction to Jack Reacher. Um, and Don asked me if I wanted to write the movie to direct. It was actually rewrite the movie. There was a script that existed written by Josh Olson. And he had designs on making this into a franchise. And I said, great, I'm not going to help you with that. Because uh, and Don said, why? And I said, because I've been in movie jail since I directed The Way of the Gun. And uh, I've spent the last 10 years asking for permission to direct movies. And I'm not going to do that anymore. Nobody's nobody's going to offer me the job. And uh, and he he was very insistent. And I said, look, I'll do it on two conditions. One, you have to convince the studio to offer me the movie to direct, because what tended to happen in in between the way of the gun and and this moment was I would have movies dangled in front of me and and I would show interest or I would do some development on it and then they would eventually go to other directors. Um, uh, no Country for Old Men was one of those that, that, that got dangled in front of me and the whole time they were courting the, the Coen brothers. I was kind of a stalking horse. I was the I was the sea biscuit of of filmmakers for for other people. <laughs> wow. Um, and, and so I was just, just like, I'm not going to play that game anymore. I'm just, I'm going through the door that opens and I'll take, I'll take real opportunities, but I'm not, I'm just not going to ask permission. And I said, the other thing is I, I would assume that this is a Cruz Wagner project and Tom Cruise is automatically attached. He's not going to be in a movie that I'm directing. Let's just list some of the directors that Tom has worked with. I'm not on that list. The, the guy who did the way of the gun is not, going to be there with Scorsese and Coppola and Spielberg. And let's just be real. That's not going to happen. So if you can come to me and say that it's mind free and clear, that there's no one attached and that the studio will offer me the movie to direct, then I'll do it. And I did that thinking I would never hear from Don Granger again on that project. And he came to me a week later and he said, it's yours. And the studio wants to do it. Now, of course, what that meant was the studio was willing in my mind, the studio was willing to develop the movie, but they were never really going to make it. Um, this was just an opportunity for them to hold on to a piece of material in the event they wanted to make it. Uh, so uh, around that time, I was hired by Fox to write Wolverine, or more accurately, I was hired by, I, I, I was asked to meet Hugh Jackman. And I had a very, very difficult experience on the original X-Men and it ended very acrimoniously between me and the studio. And the, but, but that had followed me around for about 10 years where I was still hearing stories about you know, the bad blood on X-Men. And uh, John Palermo, who had been an assistant on the original X-Men was now Hugh Jackman's producer. And Hugh Jackman was looking to go back to something more akin to the original X-Men. And he, 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 was, he was saying, I want to get back to the, the spirit of that film. How do we do that? And John Palermo raised his hand and he said, look, the guy you 
want to be talking to is Chris McQuarrie. What the X-Men kind of took the turn that it did when he came on the project. And I was sort of a, I was sort of a name that nobody mentioned in the room uh, after what had happened on X-Men. A lot of bad things went down on X-Men. I'll just summarize it. A lot of bad things went down on X-Men for which I was blamed and which, which was not the case. Uh, and, and, but because I wasn't communicating directly with the studio, I was, I was used as a scapegoat for a lot of stuff. Uh, so there was, there was just a lot of bad blood and there was no way to ever sort it out. In any case, when I got the call to meet with Hugh Jackman, my first reaction was absolutely not. And I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, you, you, you know, the animal now, you know what to do now. And this is an opportunity to meet Hugh Jackman. So just take it knowing you won't get the job. Uh, and that's what I did. I took the meeting. Uh, and when I walked in, there were there were individuals in the meeting who, who had been there on X-Men and who quite clearly did not want me to get the job and, 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 and clearly were still carrying a lot of the energy 10 years later. And I thought, I'm going to make you love me despite yourself. And I pitched the shit out of Wolverine. Um, and unfortunately, I got the job, which was not my intention. My intention was just to just to meet Hugh Jackman. Um, and when my lawyer called me, he said, well, you 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 fucked up. You got it. <laughs> and I said, well, no, just ask for too much money. And, and then they and then the, they won't give me the job. And he said, no, you're going to take the job and you're going to and you're going to and you're going to show them what you can do. And so I did that. I took Wolverine. Knowing the the mechanism now, as I did not then, knowing that not a single word of what I wrote would ultimately make it to the screen. And because of that, I was just free to to deliver. I just said, I'm just going to write the best movie that I can. I'm going to get this thing up on its feet. And when it's time for me to go, I will. And that's exactly what I did on Wolverine. And so I was in that state of mind when Jack Reacher came to me, which is you're going to write this movie and no one's ever going to make this movie and just write the best script that you can and don't think about whether or not the movie's going to get made. Uh, and that's stayed with me ever since. That's really been a big part of my philosophy was that when you are trying to, when you're so worried about the outcome, as I was on X-Men, as I was on projects earlier than that. When everything is life and death, you're constantly trying to defend yourself and defend your work as opposed to just doing the best work that you can and solving the studio's problems. And so that's that's just what I focused on. And Mark Evans, who was the executive at the time, articulated really well at the very beginning of the process, he said what the, he, he, he read the book and he really liked it. He said, what the character needs is myth. The character, the, 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 the character, whatever you do with the character, just give it some sense of myth. And I thought it was a very good note. And I took that to heart. And that became the, the construct of the introduction of Jack Reacher. And it's why I think Don's choice of one shot as the book to introduce this character to a bigger audience was the better choice. I know Fran, f fans of the the books and fans of the franchise feel like it should have been The Killing Floor and it should have been in chronological order, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, fans of the franchise also don't actually have to make movies um, and or understand what is cinematic <laughs> about the books that they love. 
And and, and that's, that, that's essentially what happened. I wrote the script. And while that was happening, I was writing Wolverine for, first for Hugh and then for Darren Aronofsky. And in the midst of all of this, I finished the script and handed it in. And you guys will love this as, as the hosts of Light Diffuse. I handed in the script and the script ultimately went to Tom Cruise, who was the producer on the movie. And Tom called me out of the blue about, about a week after the script went in, which is not something you're expecting to hear back that quickly. And he said, hey, listen, uh, I read Reacher and I loved it. Uh, I don't have a lot of time to talk. I'm, I'm on set right now. But listen, I read the script and I loved it. I want to talk to you about it. Uh, the studio is going to call you tomorrow. I said, what? And he goes, yeah, yeah, your studio is going to call you tomorrow. Anyway, listen, I just, I just want to call real quick and say, I love the script. I'll talk to you later. I got to go. And he hung up. And I thought, wow, that was just, that's amazing that I wrote this script. And a week later, the studio is calling me about it. The next day, Mark Evans called me from Paramount and he said, okay, listen, so I spoke to Tom and I think he called you. I said, yes, he did. He said, great, we're going to send a script over today. I said, what? you're sending a script? He said, yes, we're, we're sending a script over. I said, what's the script? He goes, he, he, did, he didn't tell you? I said, no, he just called to tell me he liked Jack Reacher and that you would be calling. And he said, yes, we're, we're calling to send a script. I said, what script? He said, Mission Impossible. They're, they're up there in Canada shooting Mission Impossible right now, and he wants you to rewrite it. And Tom was so busy that he, did, he, he kind of missed the headline. And I was being hired to rewrite Ghost Protocol with no mention of Jack Reacher. So I went, I went to Canada and started working on Ghost Pro, what would become Ghost Protocol. While I was waiting for notes from Darren Aronofsky on Wolverine and wondering what, what's going on with Jack Reacher. And my first week on Ghost Protocol was just downloading and digesting the production up to that point and figuring out what have they shot, what haven't they shot, what can be reshot, what can't be. And I was, I, I was learning how to rebuild movies while I was making that movie. And, uh, and, and, and the whole time I was realizing Darren Aronofsky is expecting me to rewrite Wolverine. And on my, on, on, I was only supposed to be on Ghost Protocol for a week and I didn't even start writing until the morning of the seventh day because I had been working to under to grasp the, the movie that had been shot up to then. And on the morning that I sat down to start my writing on Ghost Protocol, Darren Aronofsky called and said, hey, sorry I took so long to get back. I've got notes on Wolverine. When can you start? And I thought, this is terrible. Uh, and so there was, a, there was a little bit of dilemma of how to sort those two things out at the same time. And then I was on set with Tom and we were, we were talking about a scene and he said, by the way, I love Jack Reacher. Uh, we never got to talk about it. I said, no, no, we didn't. He said, but listen, I loved it and I'd love to be in it if you'll have me. Um, <laughs> so now I'm, I'm in this very interesting position of, of all I did was set out to write the movie and now I'm writing Wolverine and Ghost Protocol and Jack Reacher and Tom Cruise wants to be in Jack Reacher. Uh, and it was a really great lesson in terms of not trying to control your destiny and just going through the door that opens, which is something you hear me espouse all the time, was just in just taking the work and trying to do my best. All of these things were happening at the same time. And I wasn't really worried about what the outcome was of any of them beyond doing my best work. 
Uh, and that was essentially how Jack Reacher came to be. It, 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 came, it came to me obliquely, as most things do. Uh, and in fact, in any instance in which I have tried to go directly from the start of something to production has never occurred. It has never come to fruition. All of the movies that I, that I love the most and have always wanted to do and have passionately pushed forward and tried to make never, ever happen. Uh, the only movies that do are the movies where I'm, I'm just sort of tinkering with it or, or stepping in to help or, or in some way or another kind of trying to back out of the room and and end up getting pulled in and that's that's how that's the the long version of how reacher came to be we'll be back with more from christopher mccquarrie after the break cbs friday and streaming on paramount plus is coming to you don't miss tv's hottest show Fire Country. This is a high-complexity rescue with a low chance of success. Follow the rules, and you shave another day off your sentence. Critics call it explosive and pure entertainment. I'm a fella. I'm not fit to be anything else. You're not an inmate. You're a firefighter. Bring it on. Fire Country. New episode Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS, and now streaming on Paramount+. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. And did any of your Wolverine stuff make it in? Um, while I was writing, uh, or while I was getting ready to do Reacher, they started sending me, they sent me a copy of the script. Uh, they sent me a copy of the script have, that had been heavily rewritten. And I think some voiceover of a newscaster uh, from like a couple <laughs> lines of a voiceover a newscaster had ended up in the script. Yeah. And I was offered story credit on the movie. And I honestly, I thought to myself, actually, no, uh, um, the, the, I, I actually don't deserve the story credit. The story credit goes to Claremont Miller, who wrote the whole Japanese, uh, the, 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 the Japanese timeline of Wolverine. And there's a weird quirk in how comic book movies are developed that that underlining material is not like a novel. And so you're not entitled to that credit. Uh, and I simply wrote a letter to the guild to that effect and said, this, this would be wrong for me to take it. I don't deserve it. It, it should go to Claremont and Miller. And, um, uh, and, and so I ended up not taking a credit on that movie. But tr and, and truthfully, it, the story isn't mine. It's Claremont and Miller's. And the, the, the movie that ended up being made was Jim Mangle. There were, there were ghosts of things that we, that Darren Aronofsky and I talked about and, um, and and but I never I never interacted with Jim on the movie. I was gone by then. Um, but story wise, I felt like I couldn't take credit. And frankly, I thought I, I I maintain that Wolverine is probably the best thing I ever wrote for hire for a studio. Um, 
it just it just wasn't it wasn't what they were looking for. And it's and I wrote the movie as as I would have made it. I was not I, I was not trying to write what I think they were looking for and could not articulate in terms of a big a big spectacle. The other problem is you're not when I'm developing a movie like that, I'm not in the room with the director. I'm not developing for a filmmaker. And if and if you are not developing for a filmmaker, you're not really developing a film. You're developing a screenplay. Um, so uh, that just yeah no nothing nothing of mine ever ended up making. If something did, it's like the tourist. By the way, uh, I I developed the tourist for Tom. That uh, was the first thing I developed for Tom after Valkyrie, and I was on that movie through two different directors, several different sets of movie stars after Tom had decided he wasn't doing it. In fact, when I was doing it, when I was, de- when I was writing The Tourist, I was in this game of Survivor where they were, there was a story in the press every week about the four or five movies that Tom was circling. And every week, one of them would drop out and you were just waiting to get voted off the island. And he ended up doing a script called Wichita, which became Night and Day and The Tourist, fell apart and then was resurrected. It changed companies. I was a different studio. You name it. Every every player changed hands and I just kept ending up on uh, uh, on board uh, and uh, and then was eventually uh, I, a, a director got fired. I and, and then I was involved in helping to cast the convince the cast to be in the movie and then that director got rehired and then fired me off the movie. And probably three pages of what I wrote ended up in the movie. And somehow I ended up with writing credit. Now, that's the kind of movie where I normally would have said, no, thank you. But I was urged by my reputation. They said, this is going to be a big hit movie. Keep your name on it. You, you need a win. And I was like, Any, anytime you see my name on a on, on movies, there's a, there's a story behind it, unless it was a movie I developed. And... Um, uh, and that and that was one in which I, in which I left my movie my, my name on, but I really didn't I didn't feel entitled to, to writing credit. Uh, so now I'm I'm much more, uh, I'm, I'm much more adamant about it now. Where I just look at it and say, look, I just I, I didn't do I didn't do the work where I feel like I deserve credit. I'm not taking it. Julian Fellows and I occasionally run into each other and we laugh all the time, going, you know, there's, that our names are on that movie. Uh, <laughs> what the hell did we do? And apparently, but apparently, that's what the, the process said. We deserve credit, so I guess, I guess that's how. Well, Tom, Tom has been involved in like, uh, let's say, casting controversies before when he was in, involved in Interview with the Vampire, and that sort of met with Reacher as well. And I was wondering how you dealt with that, or what your thoughts were. Well, so so Don and I, when when that when it first was when Tom first said, "Hey, listen, I'll be in it if you want me," I said, first of all, you got Tom Cruise asking to be in your movie, which is which is a it's, it's rare and it's and it's a big deal, and you don't look that gift horse in the mouth. But of course, I did. I look at I looked at it and said, "All right, is that the right thing to do? Here's this here's this book, and and it's it's got a dedicated fan base and." You guys know what I think of fan service. And I and I thought, well, let's let's do our due diligence. Is this is he right? And Don and I created a chart of all the actors that we felt 
you know, we're, we're, we're big enough to carry the movie and, and by big, I mean figuratively big enough and, and which ones were big enough literally to play the role. And one of the criteria, the first leveler for us was we thought Jack Reacher needed to be American. He was a distinctly American character. Um, it's very, the, the books are steeped in Americana. And so we felt, we, we kind of leaned towards an American, even though there were a lot of really good Brits and Australians who were on that list. Um, and we graded it. We created a, a chart where you graded it based on physicality, humor, intellect. Uh, and I think there are a couple of other things. And we, we gave every, we, you know, we, we scored everybody based on that. And so there were guys who were the right physical size, but didn't necessarily dominate in other categories. And, 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 and to me, Reacher's size is only an aspect of Reacher. And this was very naive of me because in, to the fans of the books, Reacher's size is absolutely everything. It's, 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 um, it's extremely, extremely important to, to them. And, uh, and so there was this, we, we anticipated a visceral reaction and we went to Lee Child. We sat down with him in New York, we had dinner and Tom and I, or Don and I brought out this chart and it, and showed Lee, here's what we're thinking. And Tom wants to do it. And Lee understood that in making the movie this way, you were going to, he was only going to expand the movie to a bigger audience. And Lee was more than enthusiastic about it. And I said, what about the fans? You know, uh, you, you, this is your book and it's your fan base. And um, uh, is there any concern that they're going to have a reaction to that? And Lee said, yeah, they probably will. And he, and he told us in a far less diplomatic way than I'm saying to you now, not to worry about the fans, not to, not to concern ourselves with it. So with Lee's blessing, we figured, uh, we figured we were okay and we were good to go. And then I think you, we've we've spoken in the past about um, the you know the efforts that we made to acknowledge the details of the book and to to make references and winks and nods to the to fans of the franchise to those people who who know that stuff in detail and it was all misinterpreted. So the scene where Jack Reacher takes where Tom takes off his shirt in the and is washing his shirt in the sink. That's a typical Reacher scene in that it's it's showing you, A, he has no luggage, he has no spare clothes, this is all he does, he lives in hotels. And also he's got scars all over his body, which are all very specific to other chapters of the Jack Reacher story. All anybody saw was Tom Cruise taking off his shirt in a scene in front of Rosamund Pike. And and I learned a very, that, that was it for me. That was the end of fan service for me, where I just said, it's not, it, it can. It, it's fine if you if if the story happens to go there, but to specifically go after that, you do so at your peril because they don't they don't they don't they don't read it that way. They're gonna they're gonna read it with whatever their bias is, and that that was kind of the you know that's why when I get asked about Superman and Star Wars and all those other movies, I'm just like I don't think you want me, fan. If you're a fan, you I don't think you want me to do it. I'm gonna make. I'm going to make Star Wars the, the way I think Star Wars should be made. Now, that that doesn't mean I'm going to put my stamp on it. It means I'm 
I'm going to go back to the to the egg, as I always do with every project I come on to. I'm going to go back to the source. Like, You're going to make a movie like 1977 Star Wars, or as people call it, Episode Four: A New Hope. It's it's Star Wars. That's that's what it is to me. That's that's how I grew up watching it. You're going to go and you're going to make that movie. You're going to make it look like that and feel like that and have that kind of heart and have that kind of emotion. I'm not going to infuse it with the other with the other crap that people insist on injecting into movies these days to to try to make them uh, to, to to serve a specific demographic of the audience. I make movies for everybody. So I feel like when I get asked about DC and I get asked about Star Wars and other franchises, it's like, I'm sorry, you're the last person I'm making the movie for. I'm making it for a big, wide audience because those are the movies you fell in love with. That's who those movies... Star Wars Episode Four was not made for fans of Star Wars. It was made for the <laughs> audience. And it's like, yeah, it, did, it didn't exist then. And that's, that's, what's, that's what's sort of choking a lot of this franchise stuff to death, I feel, is that they're... They're coalescing an audience. They're taking, they're taking a, a an admittedly large but very distinctly passionate for portion of the audience and corralling them into a place at the expense of movies in general. I don't want to use the big C word and say cinema, but they're you. What you're doing is you're cultivating an audience to love a certain kind of film, and and that's why you're that's why you're seeing everything getting. I think that's why you see everything getting swept more and more into this. That's that's why the top 10 movies, uh, the top 10 domestic movies are all science fiction and fantasy and and things like that. It's because that's that's what everybody's chasing after. And that's the that's the audience they're cultivating. That's what movies are becoming. And I'm I I reject that. I, I feel like you can have big commercial movies that are also movies for everybody and not just fans. Right. Uh, and all of that, all of that emanates from a hotel scene in Jack Reacher where I just realized I don't work for you people. I just I'm never going to do that again. I, I did it. <laughs> I, I tried to I tried to make a peace offering. You know, I this is how I could get Jack Reacher made. This is how I could bring your big character, your character to the big screen. Um, and and I gave you winks and nods as a as a as a consolation. You rejected it. Great. Now we all know where we stand. I don't work for you guys anymore. I never will. <laughs> wow. We'll be back with more from Christopher McQuarrie after the break. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Rise and shine, football fans. Start your day the right way with Morning Footy, a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game, headlines, match previews, analysis, interviews, culture, fashion, and plenty of banter. Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning Footy.
I wanted to talk about the opening of the movie because the first, I think it's like eight minutes and 20 seconds have no dialogue. Yeah. It's all just vis- visual storytelling. Yes. And I wanted to know, was that, was that always your plan yes. from the script phase or, or did you come to it? You said it was just always from the beginning written in the script. Like there's going to be no, you just wrote it out. It was just, I mean, that, that's, that's the, what it's the, be, it's the beginning of the book. I mean, that's how the beginning of the book plays out and it's very effective scene. The, the, and now this was a big, this was a big point of contention for much of the story. The book, because it is a book, does not identify the shooter. And as a result, the shooter's identity is a mystery throughout the book. I knew from my experience making films for audiences that audiences are working on the mystery the instant you present it to them. And if I shot a scene in such a way that I hid the shooter's identity, they would know that the shooter was not James Barr right from the beginning. So I said to Tom, why are we even bothering to do that? The audience is going to outsmart the movie. Let's just level with them right up front and show that it's not James Barr. And the the movie is about Reacher uncovering this mystery. And, uh, and But the audience knows more than Reacher does. Now, Tom is very much about first-person point of view, subjective storytelling. And so this was a big break from that for Tom because the audience is ahead of the of the protagonist and he he's always concerned that the audience is going to become frustrated with the protagonist you become frustrated you become bored you become bored you tune out and i kept referencing columbo that columbo every episode of columbo is a mystery where you know the who the killer is right from the beginning and the fun of the show is watching the cat and mouse as columbo outsmarts this much smarter criminal And so that's kind of where I was leaning. That liberated me and that allowed me to design the sequence in such a way that you were just watching the anatomy of a murder. The other really critical thing was that um, I, I do not believe in the glorification or the fetishization of violence. And the more violent something is, the more uh, the, 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 the more visceral I feel it has to be. So I want, I, I wasn't going to make this perverse. I was going to force the audience to watch it. And that's why that scene is designed the way that it is, is that, you know, I'm going back to Hitchcock and I'm putting you in the point of view of the killer and I'm giving, I'm creating empathy for the victims and I'm making you, the audience, watch it going, you know, I, I can't stop this. And 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 knowing that what I was doing with a movie that had to be PG-13 and and you have to be and PG-13, the particulars of how to navigate that are are very specific. How do I do this so I can push it right to the edge and make it as visceral as I can without crossing that line? Um, we would not have done that in another Jack Reacher. In the next Jack Reacher, we were ready to go full-on rated R and it was going to be visceral and violent and brutal uh, because the market had begun to realize that the desperate clinging to PG-13 was was not necessarily... Sad. It, it, that doesn't suit all movies. Uh, so, that yes, that was, the, that was the intention from the very, very beginning. We recut the movie after I 
did my first assembly, Tom asked me to recut the movie and try to make it a mystery and to hide the shooter's identity, uh, which I did. I, I did that. And I said, I'll do that on the condition that we can test both versions of the movie. And one of the great things about Tom Cruise, and he believed very, very, very strongly that you wanted to be in the, in the point of view of the protagonist. We tested the movies back to back, and it, it, that was the only difference in the two movies, and we tested them on the same night. And to his credit, Tom called me the next day and he said, did you read the cards? I said, yep, I've got them right here. And Tom reads them all. He goes through all the cards. He said, did you read them? I said, yep. He goes, thanks for trying that, man. I was like, what? He said, yeah, I, listen, I appreciate it, but your version works. And I said, it's a difference of two points, Tom. <laughs> like, it's not like, it wasn't like some giant swing. And he goes, just read the cards, dude. That version worked better. It just worked better. And thank you for trying that. That's, that's one of the reasons I love working for Tom is he will not say it's got to be this and this is my way of making movies. He is a student of film and he works for the audience and, uh, and he listens to what they are responding to emotionally. And so, so, so the, the audience kind of becomes the great leveler. Someone asked me recently on social media, they said, do you and Tom Cruise ever argue? And I said, yeah, all the time. For your benefit. Like we're not, it's not about me winning and it's, no, it's my movie and it's got to be this. We, we look at, there's times he turns to me now and he's just like, I don't want to, I go, just try it. And he's like, but I know this is going to work. And I said, yep, it probably is. Have this in your pocket. I, I could sit here and argue with you that I think this is a better way to do it, but I don't know. I don't know. And we, how many times have we been sure something was the way it had to be. And then we got in the editing room and looked at it and went, well, that just didn't work. So there's the, the, the only arguments we have are kind of with our own sensibility of does this work or doesn't it? And Reacher was really the beginning of that. I mean, we were working together on Valkyrie. We were working together on Ghost Protocol. We were working together on The Tourist. But Reacher was the first time we were working together without working through someone or around someone or in collaboration with someone it was really Tom and I kind of focused on, you know, on figuring out how to merge our two storytelling styles. And that's, that's what you're seeing. What was it like for you getting out of director jail and being on this huge movie with a bunch of movie stars and cool set pieces and everything else? Uh, it was great. And it was terrifying because I knew now it's time to put my money where my mouth is and, uh, but I also knew the movie wasn't huge. I knew I did the math. It was like the movie had a sixty million dollar budget. Tom Cruise's movies, on average, made about two hundred million dollars domestically. The movie wasn't going to lose money. It it would have to be so bad and such a catastrophic failure to lose money <laughs> that if it was, I would it, it, then then I guess everybody who put me in movie jail was right. Uh, so I knew, yeah, I'm okay. And I knew it was somewhat in my wheelhouse. It was, it, was, it was a step into a bigger world, but not a giant leap into a bigger world. It still was rooted in some of the things I understood, the, the, the violence of it and the, the, world, the kind of the gritty, more blue collar criminal world of the way the gun and all the lessons I learned from that. And I, I, I mean, I had so much time to study the way the gun and so much time to study everything that, 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 that went into that movie not working the way that it did and being being rejected the way that it was, uh, 
that I and and mistakes that I had made really in in, in, in on two levels. One was just practical things that I that I did in order to be uh, collaborative and to be and to think in terms of budget and schedule, et cetera, et cetera. Things I just threw away on the day and really didn't realize until I was in the editing room going, wow, I should not have done that. Uh, in, in being amenable, you actually gave up the, the heart and soul of the movie. But also in other ways that I had rules that I created for myself on the way of the gun rather obsessively. And uh, and it's a thing I talk about all the time. You, you, you create rules for yourself. And a lot of times those rules can actually can actually choke the narrative to death. And so I was, I saw a movie very clearly in my head and through a series of compromises, shot the exact opposite movie. So that when I got onto Reacher, I started learning, don't go so much for a look of the film, you know, or uh, go for the film, like just try to tell the story. And, And that was the beginning of my learning is the beginning of the trajectory that I'm at now, which is I don't, I don't at all consider what a film will look like. I don't consider what the, what the design of the film is going to be. What the, I'm, not, I'm I discover it as I go, and I, and I do that by based on who I hire as my cinematographer, who I hire as my production designer, and 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 what cast I have, and. What's the general direction I'm headed in? Reacher was very, very different. That is the script, I would say, of all the scripts I've worked on with Tom, that was the one that changed the least. The only thing that really changed in that script was the car chase. And that, that's, um, you know, and that was kind of the beginning of, of, our, of our foray into action and, and where we are now. Well, do you want to talk about that car chase? We love that car yeah. chase so much. There's a shot at the beginning. Just quickly, I want to ask quick about the shot at the beginning of the car chase that leads into it. When he there's an insert of Tom's hand slowly going for the stick shift before the chase begins. It's like this heavenly, gorgeous shot. Did you actually shoot that in the car? Uh, we shot that in a buck, and it's funny you picked that shot out because that is a shot Tom Cruise talks about to this day. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. It's stunning. And that's Caleb Deschanel. And Caleb is great. Like, I did not know how to work with Caleb. I did not know enough about the craft of cinematography to really understand how to interface with Caleb and his, and his team. And I, w- I would have a very different working relationship with Caleb today if I was, if I was making another movie with him. But Caleb is... Uh, All those inserts, if you look at the inserts in Jack Reacher, that's really where I learned to do those. And you'll see if you go and watch Edge of Tomorrow, a lot of the inserts in Edge of Tomorrow, I shot working a splinter unit when we were reshooting big chunks of that movie. That's all stuff I took from Caleb. That's Edge of Tomorrow is really where I learned about, I learned more about lenses than I did while shooting Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher is where I started understanding anamorphic versus spherical. I shot the way of the gun with spherical lenses and not anamorphic. And and it was a casual decision I made rather than a learned one when I did the way of the gun and then was always frustrated why the way of the gun didn't look more like a movie to me, the way I imagined movies to look. And it was only when I discovered 
that I started to really analyze what was it about the movies I loved that they all had in common that I started to see widescreen and anamorphic. The Taking the Pelham 1, 2, 3, it's all shot on anamorphic lenses and it's kind of one of the cornerstone movies for me. Um, so understanding how to shoot that. Now what I couldn't articulate to Caleb was what I was after in other things. And so there was a disconnect in terms of our understanding of of how to get specific things. And there was never time to prepare. So there were shots that I imagined and storyboarded that we didn't have the equipment for on the day. And Caleb is very classic in his in his style. And I had things that I was doing that were kind of more radical. And Caleb was very funny. He's like, here you are doing one of your crazy shots again. You know, the, the shot with Reacher rolling over into the sniper's position and, and things like that. Caleb is, you know, Caleb is uh, Never Cry Wolf and, uh, and, and the Black Stallion. He's much more a student of Gordon Willis and, and learned from Gordon Willis. So the movie is kind of at war in that it's, it's, it has elements of both worlds. It's, it's, it's in many ways very elegantly framed and in other ways it's it's doing stuff that's more radical and I'd love to go full circle now and go back to Caleb with a thing that is more like Caleb's world and Caleb's style and and merge those two what I what what you're feeling in Jack Reacher is kind of the tension of of me trying to understand what the essence of cinematography and texture really is and it's it it's 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 a it's a tremendously misunderstood discipline in cinematography and you you look at gordon willis and his best work is where gordon willis's style is paired with the right story and storytelling um and a, a big part of cinematography is who is your production designer who is your what are your locations and it's it, there's a there's a whole thing that goes into the texture of it. Back then, I thought, oh, you hire X cinematographer, and your movie looks like that cinematographer's movies. Um, it's it's taken me a long, long time to realize how the recipe really, really works, so that so that I have a a, a more a more fluid relationship with the cinematographer. Fraser Taggart and I we have a completely different relationship than I've had with any other cinematographer before that. Uh, you want to talk about the car chase? <laughs> sure. Sure. Wait, what's up? You, you said you shot it on a buck, that shot? What does that mean? A buck is, uh, sorry, a buck is a, you take a car and you essentially cut it up and you're on a stage and you, so we took one of the wrecked cars that was really wrecked and we, and we cut it up so that you could get into the car and get in the places. We do that on every mission movie. Anytime you see Tom pulling an emergency brake or or stamping on the brakes of a car. There's no way to get the camera in those places. You're just using a piece of the car. Um, and that's that's what we call buck work. And we'll, we do that in every movie where sometimes we build it, sometimes you'll take an old junker and you'll cut it apart and use the pieces you need. That's because I tend not to shoot, just point the camera at an object and shoot it. That to me is information. I choose to shape the shots. So that when you see an emergency break, you're not looking at it the way Tom's eyes would be looking at it. You're looking, you're underneath the emergency break, looking up at Tom and feeling that. Now, that's how I shoot 
all my inserts now, that everything is about finding ways to compose the shots so that when you're looking at an object, it isn't just, hey, there's the, there's the, the, the cup of coffee we're talking about. It's a shot that says this cup of coffee is important. That shot of that gear shift is lit in this kind of amazing, so the, 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 the light is beautifully shot, but it's also the choice of lens. But it's also the way Tom puts his hand on the gear shift, which we did many, many, many different ways until we found the version where he grabs the ball between his middle and ring finger. And he, he grabs it almost like he's grabbing the grip of a gun. When he grabbed it other ways, it, it was the way you would grab the gear shift, but it's also made his hand look awkward. It just didn't have power. That shot is, is you know, you're watching the early on understanding of how to shape and craft the shot so the shot has an emotional feeling to it. And the fact that you are 10 years later talking about, dude, when he goes and puts his hand on the stick shift, that's what every shot in a movie should be. That's what it, 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 you, and anybody reaching for a, a set of car keys or, or looking at a photograph, it should have some emotionality to it. Anytime you just point the camera at something and then drop it into the movie, you're asking the audience to process it mentally as opposed to feel it as soon as they see it. Uh, and that's, that's what you're feeling there. That's, what, that's, that's why we go to the trouble of cutting the cars up and getting those angles. It's so, it's so that the movie's never breaking from the emotional trajectory you're on. back with more from Christopher McQuarrie after the break. Can I just tell you my favorite shot in this movie real quick before we get into the car chase? If, if you insist. <laughs> okay, so the Tom is on the bridge trying to figure out sort of the placement of everything, and there's yeah. that awesome shot where it goes by him, and then it pans over to Michael Raymond James in the car, and you realize he's watching Reacher... It's just such a fucking cool show. You know what I'm talking about, Charles? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's what we call the triple 180 uh, because the okay. camera does a 180, Michael does a 180, and Tom does a 180. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you're doing that in a, a – it's all shot in a rig called a biscuit rig, which is – it's like a process trailer but much, much, much lower to the ground so that it's essentially a car that's like a flatbed and you can put another car on it. And then you could put camera rigs on it, and uh, and and it, it's much more, it, and it's self-driving. You don't need a trailer in, in movie in, in the way of the gun. When you see all the stuff where they're driving, they're actually on a trailer being pulled by a big truck. So that it's, it's a whole it's a whole circus that goes driving around. The biscuit rig is very self-contained, and Caleb and his camera operator are sitting on the hood of this thing, driving on that highway. And we shot that at Magic Hour. On a holiday weekend, and the only way to get it was to take a car and drop Tom off on a bridge and then just drive away and leave him there. And the biscuit rig would drive on a circuit. There was a, there was a bridge going one, across the river one way and a bridge going across the river the other way, about a, couple, a mile or so down the river. 
So the biscuit rig would just drive in a circle and there was a radio on the ground next to Tom saying, we're coming, we're coming, we're coming. And he would have to coordinate his turn with seeing the biscuit rig coming out of the corner of his eye. So you're seeing Tom turning and then the camera turning and Michael looking at Tom. You had to coordinate all of that and then just do it. And we did it and kept doing it until the sun went down. And at the last shot we did, the last time we did it, was slightly better timing, but by then the sun was so low that you could see the shadow of the biscuit rig cutting across Tom. He was kind of, you know, the, the, the camera actually, its shadow appeared in the shot. So we ended up using the one that had the best, the, the next to best light. Um, and that's, that's how we got that shot. Wow. And there were people just driving down the highway going, is that Tom Cruise just standing on the side of the highway just doing nothing? Because for, <laughs> it, would take about, it would take about 15 minutes it would take about 15 minutes for the car to, to get back around and shoot it again. And I'm in the back seat of the car with a tiny little clamshell monitor on my chest. I'm like laying down in the back seat of the car directing Michael and kind of doing timing to the eye. I can see what the camera's seeing. Wow. Well, this is your forum to talk about the car chase. Uh, the car chase, yeah. Uh, or as we refer to it to this day, the chase that ate Pittsburgh. Um, that was the car chase was meant to be, it's, it's a blurb of about three pages of action in the script where the, the cops come to get Reacher. He gets in a car, drives it away, crashes it a few blocks away, gets out and runs. And there was a foot chase through backyards and the cops sent dogs after him and Reacher had a fight with dogs which I had, I had learned from my brother, who's a Navy SEAL and a technical advisor on first few films I did. I had learned from my brother how to fight with dogs, um, and, and it, which is pretty cool, and you've never seen it in movies before. It's actually, it's actually not the Dark Knight, you know, where Batman's beating up the... That looks cooler, but that's actually not how you would, you would fight a dog. Um, and that was kind of the cool stuff I wanted to do, and... Tom said, hey, you know, there's an opportunity to make this kind of the signature sequence of the movie. And, and I was given latitude to do what I wanted and to do this chase scene. So having done a chase scene in the way of the gun that conceptually was there, but kind of we made it up as we went along and I've kind of thrown things to the wall to see what would stick. And we didn't have a lot of permits for what we did. And it's like, I'm going to do this a little better. And I planned it very, very meticulously. I storyboarded it, it, it down to the frame. And Paul Jennings, the stunt coordinator, second unit director on the movie, kept talking about this thing called the Russian arm. He kept saying the, 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 or the, the Russian arm, which was, of course, the one we ended up using was called a pursuit arm. And he said, when you, when you see the pursuit arm and you see what it can do, you're going to love it. And he just kept talking about it, but I didn't really know what it was. And it showed up on the first night, and it was a Porsche Cayenne with a crane on the roof. And this amazing team, there's a camera operator, crane operator, focus puller, stunt driver. And I really didn't know what this thing could do until the first shot I did in it, which is the shot of Reacher when he comes the, the camera he comes fishtailing out of darkness around into the first like well-lit street in the car chase. He does a fishtail 
away from camera and the camera pulls up alongside of him and looks in the driver's side window. And my mind was blown and I threw out all my storyboards and redesigned the car chase on the fly. And everything became about exploiting the technology and not worrying about the, you know, not obsessively focusing on, well, I have these shots and I've got to edit it this way. I was like, nope, we're going with this because I see the I see the potential of this thing and we're going to squeeze every bit of energy we can out of it. That was part of it. The other big facet of the car chase was that Tom was had a hard outdate on that movie because he had to go out, he had to go and promote Ghost Protocol. And so the plan was we were going to shoot, Tom was going to leave and we were going to shoot all the stuff without Tom which was a lot of Rosamund Pike stuff. Then we found out that Rosamund Pike was pregnant and suddenly she had an outdate that coincided with Tom's. So we were rushing to finish all of their material at the same time. And now we had added this car chase to the movie. And so the only way for us to finish everything was if Tom and I retooled second unit and turned them into a second main unit. We called them action unit. And Tom and I would shoot the car chase at night and we'd shoot all the, the drama during the day. And that meant for most of the car chase, Tom and I were working around the clock. And a lot of times when you see Tom driving those scenes, he's worked a 12 hour day before going out and shooting all of the stuff that he was shooting. So it's massive sleep deprivation and combined with a largely improvised car chase combined with uh, uh, equipment we we'd never used before and were and were discovering and a mechanics unit these guys who were all building the cars they were rebuilding them every night or every every day rather to get them ready for the next night and we had four cars we had two interior cars and two exterior cars the interiors you only ever saw inside the car you didn't see the outside of it so they were banded with big steel plates like a crash cage that you could mount cameras on and they would also they would also make the car sturdier and then we had two exterior cars that we tried to keep pristine but also in continuity as the cars were getting dented up uh and so the i would say a week into that car chase it all started to become a blur in my mind i was shooting that car chase for months it was really only over the course of a few weeks and only nine people on the crew worked on the main main and action unit because they they were the absolute essential people and they were the only people who could keep up with the work schedule where and there are three or four days within that sequence where Tom and I worked around the clock we just worked we worked 24 hours but like I was taking 20 minute catnaps in the back of the pursuit vehicle hmm. and and we were we were learning you're seeing Tom and I learn our language our, of, uh, in terms of action, nonverbal storytelling while we're making that sequence. We also, I had a real cool shot I envisioned but couldn't be there to shoot where a helicopter came in, came into frame pursuing Tom and it was never quite, I never got it the way I wanted it. Uh, I didn't, again, I didn't understand lenses and action choreography enough to know how to get it. And so I was very disappointed by it. And when we were 
when we were screening the movie, we kept getting notes that the chase was too long. And no matter how much we cut it down, we kept getting that note. And I pulled that shot out and all the notes about length went away. And I realized it was one shot that was doing it, which was this helicopter shot because it was take, it was halting the energy of the sequence. I learned a very valuable lesson in that, that once you put your foot on the gas, you cannot take your foot off. You have to keep going and keep the audience arrested in a certain emotional energy. And the minute you, the minute you let go, you have to reset that. You have to get them back into that, that energy. You could see that lesson in every car chase I've done since then. Was the utilization of the kind of like, you know, everyday Pittsburgh folks, was that always part of the design of that sequence or was that another thing that you discovered as you were shooting? Because that's one of the other things that makes that so powerful, I think. Yeah, that was my initial that was my initial pitch to Tom and he didn't get it. And he was like he, he didn't see it. And he was like, I don't really know about that ending. And again, to Tom's credit, it was not. It's not something he understood, and it's something I kept saying. This, this, the end of the scene. It's going to work. And and one night when we were getting ready to shoot the car chase, he said, "Let's just go out and walk the entire route of the car chase." Now you got to understand, the car chase is not in a contained geography. It's spread all over Pittsburgh. And we went out in a car and would get dropped off at the top of whatever the location was, we would walk through the entire thing. It's Tom Cruise walking around Pittsburgh, you know, 10 o'clock at night. We walked through that tunnel. We walked down every one of those alleys. We walked along all the streets and everything and went and talked through the sequence. And when we got to, when we got to that location, I physicalized it for Tom and he immediately saw it. He said, I get it. I totally understand it. And, and, and he, and he was, he thanked me for taking him through it because it was an idea he didn't, he didn't get and didn't, he just could, it's not, it's not that he, he just couldn't feel it. He didn't understand until he saw it physicalized. And that, and that's the thing. Once he could visualize it, he recognized what it was. And it's a very, it's to this day, it's my, it's, it's the moment in Reacher that, that makes me laugh because there are there are people who who really get that moment and there are people who absolutely do not get that moment and they're you know they're saying the you know the police are looking for a sniper and why would anybody help this person etc cetera, etc cetera. it's like well first of all the police aren't looking for a sniper they caught him that morning this is in no way related and if you have a problem understanding this moment it says more about you and your relationship with authority <laughs> <laughs> and I was very careful with the casting. I was very careful with the casting of every single one of those people. They were all cast off of headshots. And I was like, these, these are all people. First of all, they're all standing on a bus. Stop. And they're, they're all waiting for a bus. And they're all, they're, they're all people from a certain economic strata of life. And they're all people who are, uh, you know, who occupy a very certain place in society. And they're, and they're, and if anything, they're out for each other than they are for anybody else. Um, and and I just I it was interesting because it was a moment in the movie that almost wasn't. And for me, it is the it's the whole purpose for for having that sequence. Yeah, it's such a wonderful moment. back with more from Christopher McQuarrie 
after the break. I did want to ask you, because on, on Twitter recently, you described shooting the quarry sequence as, quote, hell on earth. Oh, God, yeah. Um, I'm curious what happened there. <laughs> um, so the quarry, uh, we, we were struggling to find a location, and, and, and that is the beginning. Uh, that's kind of the beginning of my choosing locations more for their dramatic uh, their dramatic value than their practicality. Uh, and, and first thing you must understand, I do not like inclement weather. I do not like extreme conditions. I, my, I, my wife refers to me as the great indoorsman. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a person who seeks that stuff out with every success I have with those. I push the envelope farther and farther. When you see Dead Reckoning Part 1 and 2, you will see more inclement weather and extreme conditions and difficult environments uh, to the point where now I've kind of developed an addiction to shooting there. Not because I like going there, but because of the results that I get. It's what we were talking about before we started recording. What you will not get with green screen, what you will not get in a volume is what John Ford got in the Quiet Man and what Steven Spielberg got in the opening of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And it is visceral, it is real, and it is, and it, and, it, and there's no other way to, you got to get dirt under your fingernails. I learned that shooting that sequence. Uh, what you see on screen is fairly controlled. We're shooting in the good weather. Any rain that you're seeing is, is rain that we brought in. In between that was rain, hail, snow, fog. One night we came and there was a fog in the quarry and not anywhere else. Like you were standing up <laughs> above the quarry looking into a bowl of soup. And it was dense, <laughs> dense fog. Uh, there was a moment where it was raining and, and, and because the quarry was impacted dirt from big trucks running over it, it was hard packed soil, but then it had a layer, like a viscous layer of mud that was almost like grease. And it was everywhere and on everything. And it got in your clothes. It got over all the equipment. And I was standing next to my brother wearing rain gear. And my brother, who's a Navy SEAL, is wearing jeans and a nylon jacket. He's just standing in just this, and guys are walking by me like with wind and, and, you know, and they've got cables, miles of cables covered in this greasy, oily, silty mud and no, and, and all the tents that are around the monitors are being lifted by the wind. And so the crew are just holding them to the ground. It was, it was horrible. And I said to my brother, I have some small feeling of what it must have been like to be Napoleon retreating from Moscow. And my brother looked at me and goes, ah, shut the fuck up. You got a hard road under your feet. <laughs> and years later, uh, Jake Myers, who had been a producer on Jack Reacher and then was a was working on The Revenant. He came in to help The Revenant when they were when they were struggling. It was a very difficult production and they shot it in some of the coldest, most extreme, miserable environments in both hemispheres. They were chasing the snow for a lot of the movie and they ended up in South America at one point. They were on a glacier and, and a couple of the crew walked by and they had worked on Jack Reacher. 
And they looked at Jake and one of them said, this is bad, but it's not as bad as that quarry in Jack Reacher. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my fondest memory was the night when Caleb Deschanel came walking out to where we were shooting the scene between Tom and Jai Courtney. And Caleb looked up and he goes, I got to tell you, I've, this rain, I'm not impressed with it. Doesn't look all that great. And I looked at him and I said, this is not our rain, Caleb. <laughs> <laughs> and we hadn't turned the rain on yet. It was just, we were just standing there. He, he, but he actually, like it was raining hard enough that Caleb actually thought we were about to roll. And then we turned our rain on. And that's, that's what you ended up seeing in the movie. Um, wow. Oh my yeah. God. Amazing. Uh, can we, can we talk about the ending briefly to end on this, this sure. note? Because the ending is so fucking good. And it sounds like you had a, you had a plan for more and then there was another movie made, but I don't think it met the standards of this one, obviously. And I don't know if you can talk maybe a little bit about that, um, where you think that the sequel did or did not uh, sort of fulfill the prophecy of this one. Um, um, I, well, at the end of the end of ours and I, I would do it somewhat Different. I wouldn't do the ending differently, but I would I would handle one thing differently, which is the the love story between Reacher and Helen, which there's a ghost of what I would do now. I, I learned from oddly enough, I learned from working on Mission Impossible and Top Gun is kind of the culmination of that and changed the way I will make movies forever. That the specifics of plot tend to overwhelm the the importance of emotion and that the more you lean into emotion and away from plot, the more engaging the movie becomes. I was too focused on making the plot make sense, which is, it's a tricky plot to take from a book and turn into a movie, as are many of the plots in Reacher. Reacher, Reacher is a cinematic character in books that are not cinematic. And you you adapt them at your peril. And I looked at all the Reacher books after the fact in terms of what we would do next, where we would depart, and why. And so the 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 the, the emotional story between Reacher and Helen is kind of half baked. We really wanted it to feel romantic at the end, and we we contrived a scene where they kissed goodbye, and the audience rejected it. And to his credit, Tom was like, "They don't want it. Take it out." You didn't, you know, we, 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 as much effort as we put into it, we just said, doesn't work, let it go. It's another reason why I love working with Tom. Um, it's, it's that, it's that lesson reiterated. And, and I would, I would say that if I was going to do the movie now, I would build the movie more around a relationship of two people who meet by circumstance, develop a real affection for one another, but can never be together because she can never leave and he can never stay. And, and that's hinted at in the story, but it's not really threaded threaded in. What you're seeing in Reacher is me just sort of the way, if the, anything, the way the gun is a movie where I thought I could make you feel things by telling, by, by the true words. And Reacher, you can see how I learned how to use words more to shape emotion, like when Rosamond goes and tells the story of the victims 
but that really the images of the victims are what tell that story. And the, the sequencing of those victims is what tells that story. The words are not what tell that story. Uh, I think if the second movie um, struggled with anything was, I, A, I wasn't there. I couldn't be there. I couldn't be there to impart what I had learned. I probably couldn't have articulated what I've learned since um, at, at when they were making it. Uh, and it, you know, it's a, that's a tough book. That's a really, really tough book to, to develop. Um, and it's, it's a tough story. It's a road movie. It's a family movie. And it's a, and it's a movie that doesn't, I, I think if you were going to tell that story, you would need to firmly establish who Reacher was in the audience's mind. That story is a departure from Reacher. Reacher wasn't at a place where you could yet depart. You needed to kind of get deeper into Reacher before you could then say, and now this is the one where he's got a family. Um, so I, I think that that could have had a lot to do with it. We wanted to do something very different and something very, very, very gritty and more man with no name and, you know, sort of Reacher as a, uh, as a, as a, as a one man army. And, um, and there was, there was a really cool book for doing that. Um, which one, uh, it was called, I could be wrong. I, it was called, was it 61 hours? I'm, I, they're all mixed up in my head now. The one that ends with him crushing the guy's head in his hands isn't that the isn't that the book that ends um, with him actually? It's the one. It's it's the one where he's in the Midwest and it's human trafficking and yeah, and he's trying to get out of town and he's in he's in the middle of like the you know the the badlands and he and he and and he is a what I loved about it is the movie is fair is the, the book rather is is a, is totally agoraphobic it's it's wide open spaces with nowhere to hide it's it's the it's the airplane scene in north by northwest taken to an extreme and it's it's americana but it's dark americana it's and it was it it, ha, it was a bleak landscape and tom and i were were we were so frustrated by the constraints of PG-13 and you're, you're making an action movie and you're making it for, you know, your primary audience are young males and they're telling you with, with, it's like, we want more, we, we want more ass kicking. We want more, they want a movie that's more brutal and you're, you're equivocating by trying to make it something else. And you saw the, 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 the business woke up suddenly they're, they're they realized with, Deadpool and with Joker that there was a paying audience that would come and support those movies if you if you gave it to them. Um, we were making that argument back in 2012, saying this is just there's more there's a bigger audience there's more to it. And who are you kidding? You're not making Jack Reacher a date movie. It's just not that kind of movie. This is a visceral, hard hitting. You know, when I was growing up, you could go see a hard R movie and. And it would make money. Movies have become somewhat, somewhat equivocated. Movies are about risk mitigation, and, and and as a result, movies don't always. They're not always allowed to figure out what they are. They're not always allowed to be what their best self could be. Uh, and and I just feel Reacher's best self would be a harder hitting, more brutal, 
antidotal movie. It could be our uh, 21st century Dirty Harry. That's really where where we wanted it. Where we wanted to go with it. The business just wasn't ready to embrace that as an idea. We did the best we could within the confines of of PG-13. Now, if I would if I was to do that, I would just I would do that with original material. That's what I did. I brought Tom a movie, which is one we're talking about doing next, which is like, let's just, let's take everything we wanted to do in that world and take everything we learned from Top Gun and all the mission movies and put it into something more, more visceral and real and gnarly, just kick some ass. He, that's the great thing. It's, you know, Tom is not, Tom, and when I brought it to Tom, I presented it to him. It was, and it's brutal and it's, it's violent. And he did the same thing that he did with me on Valkyrie, where he, he said, you need more money to make this movie. And I heard, you need to compromise what this movie is. I was waiting for Tom to tell me, you know, I'm Tom Cruise, I gotta kill Hitler. And I was like, no, we don't wanna compromise. He said, guys, you're, you're blowing up the 10th Panzer Division in the first 10 minutes of the movie. You need more money, it's a big budget film. And I said, well, what's the compromise? He said, there is no compromise. You're just gonna make this movie for the largest audience possible. Because you're, you're, you're going to make it for this much money. It's got to make this much money. You need to make it for the largest audience possible. We're going to make this movie as accessible as we can without changing the fundamental story. So he didn't shy away from the fact that everybody in Valkyrie gets killed in the end, that they fail to kill Hitler. That the, It's how to give that ending hope, how to make that ending cinematic and satisfying and rewarding. That's what Tom does. So I brought him this very, very dark, violent movie. And he said, yeah, that's great. How do we make it so that this is not punishing, that the audience is carried along? Don't change the violence. But here's how you do it in such a way that the violence, that the audience is not rejecting the violence, the audience is leaning in. Uh, and he had a very simple formula for doing it, and it was brilliant. Uh, and it and it made the story that much better without my ever having to compromise on the stuff I wanted to do, which was just really, you know, was to make a hard R movie. That's what you see when you're seeing the process with Tom. And it's it's interesting. I listen to it now, where you you hear people say, "Oh, you know, Top Gun Maverick is the." Tom Cruise show, right? It's all it's it's all about Tom Cruise. No, it's all about the protagonist who happens to be played by Tom Cruise. And when you're fed an endless diet of ensemble movies, you forget what is so viscerally engaging about a movie about one person from that one person's point of view and how everything and you are allowed to invest in that person's story and to become that person. That is narrative that goes all the way back to the oldest known stories. That's, that's what it is. That's what we're doing. That's what we're all about. And you see where, you can see where movies work when they lean into that narrative. And you can see where movies struggle when they lean away from it. Doesn't mean they're not less successful. It doesn't mean they're better or worse. The, the, to us, what makes a story the most engaging is tell whatever story you want, tell it in a way that the audience is pulled in. Tell it in a way that the audience is sucked into it and invested in it, whatever the content of that story is. 
Reacher is really for us the beginning of that journey. Wow. What a perfect way to end this chat with us. Thank you so much for joining us once again, Christopher McQuarrie. I know you have much better things to be doing, but uh, we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good Good to hear you hear from you both. And I know, you, you, are you both in London right now? No, just me. Charles is uh, suffering in L.A. It's 3.30 almost. So that's why we have oh, to. Oh, my God. Charles, that is that is commitment, my friend. But of course. <laughs> After the story, I, after the story I told you about the car chase, you really don't. Have Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, is produced by Charles Hood. That's me and Drew Taylor. Our supervising producer is Abby Smith. This episode was edited by Luke Burson with music by Kevin Blumenfeld. The interview is a production of Bravo Echo One One LLC, and the podcast is a production of Paramount Pictures. All rights are reserved. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. CBS Friday and streaming on Paramount Plus. Campfire's coming to you. Don't miss TV's hottest show, Fire Country. This is a high-complexity rescue with a low chance of success. Follow the rules. Can you shave another day off your sentence? Critics call it explosive and pure entertainment. I'm a fella. I'm not fit to be anything else. You're not an inmate. You're a firefighter. Bring it on. Fire Country. New episode Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and now streaming on Paramount+. Plus.